Hello, members, friends, and neighbors of Peace Lutheran Church in beautiful downtown Puyallup, Washington, to episode five of Together in the Word on Pioneer and Third, where we are six feet apart and yet face to face with the challenge and promise of Holy Scripture. That title and subtitle don't really work anymore, I've been noticing. Uh, Just like everything else before the full effect of the quarantine, uh, because I am not on Pioneer and Third. I'm, in fact, in my spare bedroom in my home, as uh, many of us are spending time at home these days uh, as a result of the stay-at-home order. And uh, Pastor Rachel, you and I are not face-to-face or six feet apart. We're much farther apart than that. And yet, uh, I'm very grateful to have Pastor Rachel Langford of Emmaus Lutheran Church in Eugene, Oregon, on the line today to talk to us about Doubting Thomas, uh, but I've never liked that moniker. More about that later. Hi, Rachel. <laughs> Hi, thanks for having me. Uh, Pastor Rachel is a friend of mine, first and foremost, also a seminary classmate and fellow pastor, and so I'm, I'm hopeful that uh, you'll get a chance to get to know her a little bit uh, during this time. Uh, to that end, Rachel, would you be willing to tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Um, I would say it's exciting for me to be on here with Nate because he has been a good friend of mine for, sorry, Pastor Nate, excuse me, um, for about 10 years now. Uh, he and Bethany hosted me when I visited um, the seminary that we both attended in Chicago to see if I wanted to go there, and that was about a decade ago, so that's been exciting. Um, and now I live in Eugene, where Pastor Nate and Bethany grew up, so it's a interesting kind of coming together of paths. Um, so I've lived in Eugene for about three and a half years, um, serving at Emmaus Lutheran Church, which is about the same size as Peace Lutheran, maybe a little smaller. Um, but it's a good group of folks who love each other and love God and love to serve. So it's a good place to be. Um, I live here with my husband, Andrew, who also works at the church with me. He's a, um, Bible scholar but also serves um, as what we call the pastoral associate. So that's uh, fun for us to work together. And we have a tiny little dog, Emily, that I'm hoping doesn't bark during our podcast. She's sitting here with me. Um, but uh, that's that's where that's where I'm at and my people and my, my little creature. So, yeah. We love Emily. She can bark to her heart's content. Okay. <laughs> It's, if the mailman comes, we'll all know. It's her nemesis, so. Okay, good. Well, thank you. I appreciate you letting us know a little bit about yourself. And um, I've been asking, by way of introduction to our conversation about the gospel for this coming Sunday, I've been asking people to reflect a little bit on the coronavirus pandemic, and uh, but uh, not necessarily just in the capacity of a, of a ministry professional, but also as a, a human person who has to cope. So my first question to you is, um, what is getting you through? Yeah, well, I guess I want to be honest that there's ways in which I feel like I'm not getting through, that there's times where mm. it just feels like I'm in this moment of, I don't want to say panic, that's too strong, but just like fear and having a hard time and um so so certainly it's a great question but I also just am realizing the the realities that it's kind of a back and forth you know kind of I feel some days like okay I'm going for a walk by the river and 
the river is still beautiful and it's still flowing and that's wonderful. Um, and there's times where I'm just sitting in my house going, oh my gosh, what's happening in the world? Um, and so I think, I think that just trying to give myself some grace for that back and forth, for the reality that, um, we just don't, we don't know when this is going to end. So what does it even look like to get through it? Um, we don't know all of the impacts that it's going to have on us, but just trying to say like, okay, it's God is here. God is with me. We still have family and friends. So like in some ways life is pretty normal. You know, we eat breakfast and lunch and dinner and you know, the sun still comes up, um, goes down again at night. And, um, so just like engaging in the regular rhythms, but then also, um, just allowing for it to be a time of anxiety, time where we don't know what's going to happen. So yeah, I'd say petting my dog, <laughs> giving myself some grace, um, and 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 letting there be a flicker of hope. You know, in, in spite of all the things that are going wrong, just like noticing that there's a flicker of hope always somewhere in my heart. So those are some things that come to mind right away. Yeah, you're you're helping me understand the real implication of that question, which is that getting through is kind of a relative term. Uh, there are some days when we're getting through great, and then there are other days when we're not. And you're certainly speaking a truth, I think, that, that many people can identify with. So thank you. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I know we're all... we. One of the things I'm noticing as a pastor is that um, as I talk to people, like, how are you doing? How is this crazy time for you? Some people are like, oh, this is fine. I'm totally fine. I'm not worried about it. Like, I'm, you know, just having my life and everything's fine. And then other people, it's, you know, they're really scared for family and friends or they're, you know, really isolated. And so it's it's such a mix, you know, of, of how we're all doing in this time. So, yeah, just being together. Yeah. No kidding. That ref that's a reflection of my own experience, too, as I talk to people, uh, which I suppose is natural. I mean, we can't all be expected to have the exact same experience. And I, I do. I wonder, too, sometimes how sort of American culture dictates uh, the, the urge to give kind of an upbeat, optimistic response to that question. How are you right. doing? Oh, well, as well as I could be, which could mean really terribly, to be honest. Right. But sometimes yeah. I wonder how. I wonder how this uh, crisis, and it is in fact a crisis, is going to encourage us to practice more healthy vulnerability, right? To be more, yeah. maybe, maybe more truthful and maybe sit more graciously in the burdens of others, but also our own discomfort. I don't know. That could be a, a small mercy, I suppose. Yeah, and I know we haven't gotten to the text yet, but I think there's some of these elements in the text as well, just of people having really different responses, you know, to crazy events. And so anyway, more about that later. You mean a story about disciples who are literally locked behind closed doors? <laughs> yes. <laughs> I mean, sometimes the word hits you over the head. Not always, right. but sometimes. More about that later. Sometimes it does. Uh, thank you. Um the other question, and you, you, you maybe, maybe we've already started kind of alluding to an answer here, but the other question I've been asking the guests on the podcast is, uh, you, you, you mentioned a flicker of hope that you try to retain. For whatever reason, the spirit of hope, it seems like it's undying. It's impossible to be extinguished, at least uh, 
at least for now, uh, what are some of your concrete hopes about how we, and when I say we, I mean that in, in any way you, you'd like to take it yourself personally, in your family, your congregation, your community, our nation, what are some of your hopes for how we emerge over time from this particular crisis? Yeah, I think the the easiest um, place to start would be to say for like my congregation, my hope is that we come out of this with just as strong of a sense of community as going into it, right? So my congregation, we talk a lot about how we just really love each other and we like to take care of each other. It's, it's kind of a central um, part of Emmaus's identity, right? And a lot of churches feel that way, but it, this is definitely seems to be like something that we um, hold on to as a congregation. So I'm hoping that that is fostered enough in this time where we are physically distant from one another, um, that when we get back together, that it won't be like meeting each other anew for, you know, when you haven't seen a friend for a really long time, sometimes it can be like, hey, it's like no time has ever passed. And other times it can kind of feel a little awkward. And I think with the, like, the seriousness of this event and how we are all, um, kind of experiencing it differently i think that there might be some some work to do of being able to transition back into um our normal as a community so i guess just to have that sense of connection and care for one another through this time my hope is that that will help us kind of come back together in a way to be able to breathe together and say like okay what is what does it mean to be Emmaus? What does it mean to be the church? And, you know, whether this be July or, you know, the end of May, um, in this kind of world that we just don't fully understand, right? Not that we probably ever fully understand the world, but I think that that's coming more clear to us now that there's just so much that we're not in control of. And so, uh, so that's my hope. My hope is that we can just maintain a sense of community, even from afar. Um, I think for, for myself, you know, I I just hope that when this is all, um, when it starts to move, right, when we start to be able to get back together in some way, shape, or form, that I'm going to be brave enough and wise enough to consult with the right people to see, like, what it, what it means to get back together for church and what it means to um, be a, a leader in this time. So... I just think that we are going to have some hard choices. We, I was just talking with some fellow pastors and um, leaders about whether or not we're going to have vacation Bible school this summer. You know, and I mean, there's just so many things that we don't know, like how it's going to go. And so I think there's just going to be some hard times. So I'm, I'm hoping for some bravery and some collaboration and wisdom. And then I guess the, I, it makes me really sad just our, that our country seems to uh, there's there's a way that we can disagree and that we can critique and we can hold each other accountable that I think can be good and then there's a way that's just it just tears at our souls a little bit no matter you know where we find ourselves on the political spectrum and I feel like you know when there's a crisis it's this invitation you know to come together right you always talk about like how war brings people together I mean, not every war and war is not, you don't want that to happen. But when there's a crisis, you know, the country comes together and you kind of, kind of hoped that maybe this would mitigate some of the vitriol, some of the, you know, the 
sort of anger at one another um, in our nation, and it just doesn't feel like it has, but it's not over yet. And I think, so one hope that I have is that as we continue to be the United States of America together and in the world, like part of the world community together, that there, I'm hoping that there's like a flicker of community that kind of grows, you know, that, that our relationships with one another, um, politically, but also in the world that we can, that we can be community together. So I don't know, that's, I mean, kind of vague, but just some sort of hope for treating each other in a humane respect, um, as we face the pandemic is going to go on for a while like other problems in our world are going to go on. So what does it mean, you know, to work together? This is a refrain I continue to hear over and over again that, you know, the shared, shared crisis, shared needs, uh, a shared experience may sort of hit the reset button on some of the divisiveness. Uh, and it's just, it's, it's just clear to me that a lot of people are hoping for that, that, that the, the sort of sheer humanity, um, that so everyone is kind of clothed in their sheer humanity right now. That's kind of a way I'm thinking of it. And yeah. regardless of really regardless of, of perspective or, or culture or uh, political persuasion, uh, it's really easy to allow uh, some of those judgments to re-entrench themselves unless we like take a deep breath and say, okay, this experience that we shared, which was troubling in a lot of ways and brought to light a lot of, really important problems facing our neighbors uh it's not just gonna it's not just gonna disappear you know we can't be gaslighted into uh believing that we didn't see the evidence of our own eyes um so to push that kind of to push that hope one step farther myself my prayer is that we you know think more creatively and and critically about how how we stock you know healthcare facilities with personal protective equipment so that people aren't having to rely on homemade masks, not to say homemade masks aren't wonderful and beautiful contributions. They are, but should they be necessary in the wealthiest country in the world? Mm -hmm. Um, Shouldn't we be prepared for instance, for a a crisis such as the one we face or, or something I keep coming back to that the, the indignity with which I think we often treat people in the service sector um, and not only in terms of compensation, that's certainly the case, but also just in terms of treating service uh, workers as though they're like uh, features of our lives and not human beings with lives and stories of their own and needs of their own. Those are yeah. those people have become emergency workers. I mean, it's it's a it's not lost on me, right? That that folks have in some cases involuntarily been assigned to their shifts without necessarily having proper equipment either. So. I know that those are kind of specific uh, examples of of what you're describing, uh, but really important to me that that uh, that those those things don't get lost in the shuffle either, and that we can maybe think uh, think about how a new normal, whatever that new normal will look like, will take into consideration uh, those those facts. Anyway, that's kind Absolutely. of that's the way I'm thinking about it today. Yeah. Uh, thank you so much for for sharing those hopes. I'm hoping we can kind of the reason I keep asking those questions is that you know I I want people to know they're not alone as they strive to get through each day, and that everybody is is kind of struggling with the same burdens or similar burdens uh, about getting through the days and and wondering about when the 
when this is going to come to an end and what that end will look like. So thanks for, for sharing your heart a little bit there. Yeah. So we this podcast focuses on the upcoming gospel story uh, for Sunday. And this Sunday, the second Sunday in Easter, the gospel story is from the 20th chapter of John. And one of the interesting, unique things about this story, and the reason maybe you're so familiar with the story, is because this same reading gets assigned absolutely every year, regardless of the year, on the second Sunday of Easter. So Thomas gets his own feature presentation uh, here on on uh, the second Sunday of Easter, regardless of which synoptic gospel we're reading. So I went back and looked and saw, oh yeah, every single year I've got to preach something about Thomas or the disciples, <laughs> but more importantly about this story of that first Easter evening in John. Um, so I'm really looking forward to to talking to you about it too. It's it's a favorite of mine for lots of reasons. But uh, let me let me go ahead and read the text first. The text is from John chapter 20 verses 19 through 31. John 20, 19 to 31. When it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and the doors of the house where the disciples had met were locked for fear of the Judean authorities. Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. When he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. But Thomas, who was called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the mark of the nails in his hands and put my finger in the mark of the nails and my hand in his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were again in the house, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were shut, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hand. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Do not doubt, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have come to believe. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written, so that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that through believing you may have life in his name. The gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. Yes, praise to God. Um, okay, so when we study the Bible at peace, we we think in terms of three really broad basic questions, which allow for a lot of flexibility, but sort of ground us a little bit. And those three questions are, what stands out to you? Anything, a word, a phrase, an image, a thought? What? Uh, The second question is, what questions do you have? And those are not necessarily questions that you have to have an answer to. Uh, And then lastly, what will you take from this text for today? How does the word become flesh in your life? Shall we go ahead and start with that first one? Sure. 
Yeah. So, Pastor Rachel, what stands out to you this time around? Well, perhaps you've already talked about this before in your congregation or when you're talking about the Gospel of John, but what stood out for me in your reading was um, the way that you took the term the Jews and uh, said the Judean authorities. And so I've sometimes substituted, you know, Jewish leaders, you know, so that you're focusing on um, that that leadership aspect. But um, just something I, I learned in seminary, really, that, um, that the Gospel of John, um, the writer sort of uses the term the Jews in a way that maybe we don't hear that the way it was intended, you know, that when he was saying the Jews, he's really talking about um, the religious leaders that were persecuting both Jesus and then the disciples, you know, or that the disciples were afraid of them afterward. Um, and how important that is when we're um, thinking about our um, understanding of uh, our neighbors who are Jewish, so uh, our, that we aren't trying to kind of uh, isolate them as like, okay, well, it's the Jews. Jews are somehow, you know, did this to Christ, right? Which was a theme that Christianity kind of unfortunately took on throughout the last couple thousand years at times. So anyway, I just wanted to highlight that, that you uh, had changed that term and just say thank you for kind of being sensitive to that. Um, Another thing that uh, stands out for me and this, so, right, Doubting Thomas, I think I, that was one of the first stories in the Bible that I could probably tell you, right? I mean, I, I wouldn't have said it in all of these words, but when I was a kid, being able to say, like, okay, so there's this disciple named Thomas, and the other disciples saw Jesus, and they believed that Jesus had come back, but Thomas, um, you know, didn't believe, and so then Jesus showed up, and Thomas, you know, finally realized that it was Jesus, and, you know, Jesus explain to him like that he should just believe right that's that's how I kind of uh, framed it when I was growing up and because it seems like there's this um Jesus isn't chastising Thomas but he says have you believed because you have seen me blessed are those who have not seen and yet have come to believe right and so that can be almost read as a critique Mm -hmm. but what stands out to me is like when we talk about um, the, this word blessed, right? And so we, the Sermon on the Mount is when this normally comes up, right? Blessed are the poor for they shall see God and whatnot. The, that actually comes from a word that means happy. It can, it can be translated as happy, happy are those. And if you substitute that here, um, Jesus says, have you believed because you have seen me? Happy are those who have not seen and yet have come to believe. If you kind of change it a little bit, it sort of takes the critique out of it a little bit. And, it, you know, I mean, I think we can all probably think of someone in our life who has, like, great faith, unquestioning faith. I mean, I, I definitely know some people like that. I would not put myself in that category of unquestioning faith, right? There's, I have questions a lot and I wonder like, how does this make sense? God, like, what are you doing here? Um, But there are people for whom it's just super easy. They love God, they trust God. And, you know, it, for them, this kind of, Jesus says that he, he came back. And so I just, I believe that that's what the Bible says. And so when you take, take that, I mean, yeah, that is, probably pretty pleasant in some ways to to not 
have as many questions as like, for example, I have. And yet, (laughs) and yet, I think that in a way, Jesus is not necessarily chastising the questions. He's just acknowledging, yeah, happy are those who are able to have that faith. But if you if you look at it, Jesus is also just showing up and providing Thomas with what he needs to have faith, right? Mm-hmm. And so that kind of idea of God meeting you even when you have questions, right? Um, so I, I really appreciate that, that this story shows that there are various ways to be a disciple. There are various ways to receive um, the news that Jesus is alive, which I think is, I, I think that that can just tell us that there isn't one way that we all have to respond oh, that's to beautiful. the good news of Easter. Yeah. Oh, wow. I love that. There are so many beautiful details in this story. It's hard to know how to focus in on just one, but but that's one of them that really stood out to me too, that that um, the news of the resurrection doesn't go out all at once like an email blast and everyone's supposed to get it and accept it at the same rate. Like it takes a whole week for Thomas to get to where the other disciples are and that's okay, right? That doesn't make Jesus' encounter with Thomas any less important or like secondary, for instance. In fact, in a way, Thomas's response once he does get the evidence, which by the way, all the other disciples already had, Right. Uh, he's not asking for anything more than what everybody else has already had. He just had some FOMO, you know what I mean? He had some fear of missing <laughs> out and wanted wanted to be included in the same experience the rest had. Any, in any case, a week later, he sort of, Jesus finds a way to bless him too, right? To right. Finds a way to reach him. But it's not at the same rate as everybody else. It went Mary Magdalene first, then the disciples, and even they were not quick to accept the good news because it was too unbelievable, too shocking. And then a week later, Thomas is sort of the last to come along. It gives me great comfort that disciples are not expected to to receive and to incorporate this good news into our lives at the same rate. Uh, and that 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 hit me upside the head too this time around. Yeah, well, and if you think further into the story, you know that's probably been true. Uh, as far as like people having different um, rates of response from the beginning, because you imagine like Paul going out and talking to people and telling the story of the risen Christ, you know, these disciples just like, so like right after Thomas hears about it, like I, I always think like, who are the characters in the story that just aren't mentioned? So there probably weren't just, like the three women at the tomb, or, you know, depending on which version of the story, I guess we have two in, in Matthew and a couple in the other ones. But so however many women were there when that morning on Easter, there were also guards, right, who had like gotten frozen and, you know, in one of the stories. And there were people around who would have seen these like scurrying women, like running off to go tell us good news. There were people who were experiencing parts of this. And I even imagine like the disciples are like locked away, but maybe there were people bringing them food or maybe they were locked away in a room of somebody else's house. And so like, there's probably other people who are hearing bits of the story who are, you know, observing this happening, who are then going to be part of telling the story further on. Like, that's how we know the story of Jesus today. The story got passed on. And just thinking all of these people 
right, had a different reaction when they heard the news that this man, who some of them thought was a, already knew was God, and some of them didn't, like, this man was alive, which is a pretty big deal. Someone who had died is now alive, right? And the way in which I think we come to realize even, like, how important that is in our lives, right, it was different for the disciples than for maybe some of the other followers who heard about it a little bit later. And just knowing that, knowing that there isn't, like, an expectation that we immediately understand how important something is, that we immediately believe something just because a pastor or the Bible or whoever says it. Or even a powerful this... spiritual experience. I mean, I'm. it's yeah. not lost on me that in, in some traditions, and this is not meant to be disparaging, but it's just a, a difference. In some Christian traditions, the, 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 the fact of having a single overwhelming experience of conversion, this sort of spiritual right. enlightening, is what makes you... Uh, a believer, uh, so to speak, and what 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 worries me? I, I I mean, I love I love the notion of spiritual experiences and 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 have had mountaintop experiences myself. What I fear is when the emphasis is on the conversion experience, that when inevitably you come back down from that mountain, inevitably when you have a dry spell in your spiritual life, or uh, things go wrong horribly wrong for you in your life, and you start to wonder. Oh well, maybe maybe my spiritual experience wasn't quite confirming enough. Maybe it wasn't quite immediate or urgent enough to kind of yeah. keep me within God's grips. When when we look at this story, that's that's exactly you you put your finger on it. It has nothing to do with one singular experience that each person has to have uh, in order to become legitimately believers. It's sort of this piece by piece, bit by bit. Even in the Gospel of Mark, I mean, it, Jesus is trying to prevent people from hearing about him, for goodness sake. Don't tell them what I've done. Uh, how on earth are we supposed to have an all-consuming spiritual experience when the Messiah himself doesn't want anyone to hear about what's going on in his ministry? Anyway, just kind of a way to affirm what you're saying there. It's really, really comforting to me that I don't have to have all the pieces in place at once. In fact, I probably never will, and that's probably okay. Yeah, I think it is okay because, uh, you know, you are a religious leader. That's, you know, one of your identities. And I think if we have leaders who are putting across a message of like, oh, you have to have everything in place. You have your beliefs have to be in, you know, in order. You have to believe the right things. I, I think we end up probably losing a lot of people, you know, first of all, because it's not true. You don't. I mean, if you look at if you look over all the messages that God is trying to give and yeah. the various testaments, you don't see like you absolutely have to believe these things, otherwise you're out. Like mm-hmm. if if you look at it holistically, you're not going to find that. So that's one reason why it's bad. But I also think you're going to lose people because if what people are told it means to be Christian and how you communicate that and how I communicate that is part of how people, you know, especially younger ones, the younger people in our congregations and whatnot, we're, we're a big part of their formation. And, um, and so if we're, if we're trying to say like, oh, you have to have everything in order, believe the right things, how are they, I I mean, how are they going to link in, you know, with, with a world that's constantly like showing us the ambiguity of everything and teaching us to question everything and mm-hmm. i mean if there's not space for questioning in our faith then i'm wondering if people are just not going to step into the space of mm-hmm. christianity if that makes sense yeah 
yeah, there's nothing absolutist about it for me, at least. Um, and it would be disingenuous for me to insist that people accept a certain series of principles uh, on faith permanently in order for me to count them among the flock, frankly. So, because I, I can't necessarily affirm all those principles, whatever they may be at all times. I'm just reminded that the the news of resurrection comes to all of them the same way that faith happens among all of us necessarily because faith is has to be collective. Somebody has to carry you in faith when you can't have faith yourself. Um, so th- that's an experience. It's not lost on me either that, you know, Jesus doesn't come to Thomas individually that second week. All the disciples are still there. Who knows how many of them are like breathing a sigh of relief because they get to see the risen Lord again because they were already questioning the evidence of their eyes. I mean, again, we could right. do a lot of midrash on the story too, but there's plenty of material there, I suppose. Yeah. Thank you. I really appreciate that. Um, what about questions? Do you have any questions about this text as you hear it again? Well, one of my questions is one that I then kind of explored this whole sense of like Jesus saying, okay, so blessed are those who have not seen and yet have come to believe. Yeah. It's kind of like, what is what is Jesus trying to do there? You know, I, I'm wondering, like, what is, what is his point? Now, I gave one answer earlier, one that I've kind of come to is that I think it is this acknowledgement that it is easier if you just believe and yet Jesus is going to come to you, right, and show himself even mm. if you haven't. Um so I mean that's a that's a question um that I've asked. I I also and the, I don't have an answer to this, but I always find it interesting when the gospel writers kind of like break the third wall or whatever you know it's like when they're talking directly to the audience they stop telling the story and now they're just addressing you so at the very end you know john's saying like now jesus did many other signs which are not written in this book but these are written so that you you that's us right like the audience may come to believe that jesus the messiah the son of god and that through believing you might have life may have life in his name and i so I don't know if it's exactly a question, but just that function of um, kind of wanting to summarize. Like, hmm. this is, I'm telling you this um, so that you will believe and understand. Um, I, I sometimes wonder if the gospel writers just didn't quite believe enough in their stories to huh. just let us have the yeah. experience. Yeah. Um, why did they feel like they needed to do this? I think Matthew does that a couple times, too. Mark yeah. never really does. But, Mark is so um, stark in his storytelling. But yeah, it's almost like John is hedging his bets here. Like, well, there's more evidence and I haven't included it here, but I hope this is enough because I'm not so sure. <laughs> right, exactly. And again, I think that there's, it's kind of ironic because in the story, you know, you're seeing this kind of um, believe the news, you know, just believe the news and don't need evidence, right? Like, I mean, I, I think it's okay that Thomas needed evidence. I think that's what we learn. But there's also this kind of, um, this kind of like, isn't it great that people just believe? And yet, then John's like, okay, but if you do need more evidence, like, just put that aside because this is enough for you. You know, so just like kind of a, again, one of the things that I think Lutheranism kind of offers to. I don't know, the world of Christianity, is the sense that the Holy Spirit's going to move. Like, we don't have to, like, force ourselves to understand 
everything about the Bible. We don't have to force ourselves to like have certain experiences. Like, like we can like set it up that, you know, go to worship, read your Bible, but then believe that the Holy Spirit's going to come in and do some of the work. Like you don't have to like sweat and, and like work super hard to understand everything. Like let the Holy Spirit do some of the work. And, and so that's something I'd want to tell John. It's like, okay, you know what? You told the story. <laughs> now just let the Holy Spirit do some of the work. Like let the oh, Holy yeah. Spirit work in the hearts of the, of your readers so that they, you know, have this sense of connection, sense of um, understanding the story. I don't know. I love that. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting because you've, you're now actually addressing my greatest question about this text, which might be my greatest question about the gospel of John in general, which is the meaning of this word believe and believing. Yeah. We've, you know, we've, we've come to a really specific and maybe too strict understanding of that word, especially when we've turned it into, you know, intellectual assent of a series of propositions. You believe if you accept these following facts about Jesus of Nazareth, and because you are able to assent to these principles, you are, you know, somehow in, right? But belief comes comes from that beautiful Greek word that that has such a richer meaning than that, and it's really more relational than it is intellectual. The belief means to trust, to cling to, to give your heart to. Right? This this notion that that um, belief really means kind of turning yourself over to, uh, in a in a way that it may seem naive to a, a post enlightenment world. Well, well, how can you believe anything unless you can demonstrate it with with evidence, right? Uh, we, we believe things because we can see them, much like Thomas, right? So forensic Thomas. But, but belief means so much more than just accepting principles, you know, in spite of maybe your own uncertainties about them, um, yeah. which, which seems so antithetical to the ministry of Jesus, right? The ministry of Jesus is so relational, and it's so life-giving, and it's so, you know, it buttresses people's hope, and it heals, and it, and it, gives life and life abundant. And so for me, belief has to mean more than, well, if you can say the creed without like crossing your fingers behind your back, (laughs) then you believe. And I'm telling you these stories so that you accept the stories as I tell you them and don't question, you know, supernatural events or don't question the way that women are treated in the gospel stories or whatever the case may be. Uh, belief means to to trust, right? To to cling to Christ as Messiah and Lord, in spite of in spite of my questions or experiences. Uh, I don't know. Yeah, that, that's a great. That, que- how do how do we get at that? Is a great question for me. Well, and I I think it's a it's an important point you make, and I some I sometimes wonder, like, okay, so where does this come from? Like in our own, you talked about post enlightenment thinking, right? So we're trained to understand belief is like, okay, so you believe in something because it's a fact. And a fact is something that can be proven, right? right? Okay, so that's our framework. So we learn that in school, right? When we learn the scientific method. So we learn that in how, just kind of like how like philosophy um, dictates the concept of truth. So some of that is conditioning. I think there's also a psychological component that like it feels more comfortable when things are black and white. Mm-hmm. When we can be 100% sure that something is true so there's I think one of the reasons that we tend to 
in Christianity, right belief or, you know, believing the appropriate thing, saying the creed, like you said, without your fingers crossed, like why that's emphasized is because it just feels more comfortable. And yet, I think because we are people who are constantly changing and evolving and we we have there's a lot of ambiguity in our lives there's a lot of transition in our lives like even in our identities and if there was kind of this one right way to believe there were these exact things that you had to believe um you know that would that would be easier but we'd we'd be going in and out of like being in line with what's right and then what's not because we just are not that static right and the other thing that's true, I think, is that I we can be really sure of um, the power of God and not exactly sure of exactly what some of these texts mean. And, and by that, I just mean, like, in some ways, if we just let let God continue to speak to us through the scriptures, through the relationships we have with other Christians, through like through conversation through all of that if we can just sort of like let that be and know that the truth isn't like this one thing that we're going to reach i think in a way like you said that's just a it's a trust that god is present with us that god is very powerful and very good and very present in these stories and in our lives um i sorry that's a tangent but i i do think that we can both like uh, give ourselves grace that at times we want belief to be more black and white, what's true and what's not, but then also kind of embrace the reality that we might not know anything exactly, but that doesn't mean that we don't have a strong sense of God's presence and power. Amen. Um, thank you. You, you've maybe ventured down uh, into the realm of the third question a little bit, which is wonderful. I'm glad you've gone there, um, which is, you know, how does this word kind of take flesh in your life today? What, what do you, what do you take from it? And, and if you're willing, can I, can I give a response to that first? Sure. Based on what you've just said, really, um, there's this really, uh, brilliant quote from a commentator by the name of D Cameron Murchison, who I read, this week, and he's talking about the peace of Christ, this this word that gets repeated throughout this story, but also at the prior to the crucifixion, uh, when Jesus says, my peace, I leave with you, my gift is my peace to you. Uh, but then that we reenact every single Sunday in worship, a liturgical reenactment of this very story, offering each other the peace of Christ, which of course is the peace the world cannot give. Um, and and peace doesn't rest on certainty or on uh, spiritual stability or on some measure of my moral or ethical worthiness or whatever the case may be. Peace is sh- just purely a gift of God. And, yeah. uh, and that's clear because the risen Jesus has come to these fearful disciples behind these locked doors uh, in, in the place of their of their deepest anxiety and fear, and uh, and offers the first thing he does is offer this this peace. And and um, Murchison writes that the peace of Christ applies at every point where we fear that God's goodwill for the world's well being is a pious dream. 
out of Mm. touch with the chaos and hatred of everyday life. That just speaks volumes to me that, that if my assessment of God's goodness or my assessment of God's presence is dependent on the evidence of my own eyes, I am likely to be disappointed. I'm likely to question just like Thomas rightfully who has just been through the trauma of the crucifixion and all the fear and anxiety that goes along with it. If I'm going to rely on my own uh, assessment of God's goodwill uh, and God's grace and love and mercy, for me, even individually, but for the world in general, I'm going to be disappointed. But the, the peace of Christ is that, that sense of assurance that seeps in in and through the things you talked about, you know, be, being immersed in the community of faith, hearing the word, proclaimed both in scripture and in the words of friends and, and, and strangers alike. Um, but that, that deep seated sense of well-being that kind of lasts in spite of all the evidence to the contrary, that's the peace of Christ. That is the gift of God. That, that to me, that's what I, that's what I take from this text basically every single time. But, but, um, especially since it's, our congregation's namesake. It's so important for me to emphasize that in my own life. So anyway, that's what I thought. I thought I'd share that with you. Not to mention, by the way, that uh, Jesus breathes on them. Uh, keep keep that in mind in a time of coronavirus. He, he breathes <laughs> on them, which we would never dare do. But uh, in the meantime, we'll have to make do with a word and, and not the breath, I suppose. But what yes, about you? Well, fortunately, Jesus' breath and like breathing the Holy Spirit to them, that's what I think about. Right. Um, probably is more life-giving than the breath that we would breathe on, on each another. other. <laughs> so, yeah. Right. So, we, we can still welcome Jesus' breath. Um, yeah, you know, you're talking about peace, and I think that's one of my favorite parts of this passage every time I read it. Um, I When I hear... Uh, this phrase like and Jesus said to them again peace be with you it feels like Jesus is just like saying I love you Mm -hmm. I I just imagine um, Jesus looking at his disciples whom he loves and he sees their fear and he sees how crazy this all is to them and he just says peace be with you it's a gift it's an offering of love of of um presence with them right it's he knows that he when he's with them that um that's going to give them comfort in the midst of the craziness that they found themselves in which was you know they were so scared after he died they were they felt abandoned perhaps they felt you know scared of the authorities but and so he just comes in and he says peace be with you and one of the one of the things that's true about that word peace is that it's so meaningful for so many people Mm. right so in the um hebrew language this concept of shalom yeah the it's like the it's holistic wellness. It's like wellness. It's like offering people um, this wish. If you're offering them peace, like this wish for every part of their lives to be whole. It's it's not it's not like happy. It's like to be well. And what does it mean to, to be well? To be able to thrive, right? Like mm-hmm. so, shalom is this kind of um, this wellness of your of one's whole self, psychologically, physically, all of the things. And then I think about like how important the word peace is, even in the um, 
So in the Islamic tradition, so I pronounce this wrong every time, but assalamu alaikum, right? And so it's like the yeah, it's a standard greeting. You. Yeah, it's a standard greeting. This offering of peace, and so it, it's a it's a beautiful thing because it is like what they start with, mm-hmm. right? And again, it's this gift of God, this the peace that comes from God, um, the goodness of God. It's like offering that to someone. Um, and so, like you said, we, we enact that every Sunday in worship. And so thinking about that, the next time we're actually able to offer, offer each other peace in person, I think it can be a really beautiful thing to imagine that we're, that we're truly from ourselves offering people this like peace of God, this love of God that has the power to bring comfort, wholeness, um, love into people's lives. And that, that, that is a blessing we can give others. Um, I just, I love that there for me, that's a very powerful, um, blessing that we see Jesus giving and that we then can give as his disciples, right? Jesus says, I've come and done these things. Now you go off and do these things. And I think that's something that we can, we can do. So that's one thing I take from it. The other thing I was reading, um, from working preacher, uh, so this commentary on the text for the week. And one of the um, last uh, paragraphs, this author is like uh, summarizing kind of what they're taking from it. And and uh, they say the whole of this, so the story of um, the women giving their testimony and then the disciples and then Thomas doubting and then Jesus coming, um, they say the whole of this is neither about phantom appearance nor even a doubting disciple, right? So we call it the story of doubting Thomas. It's not necessarily about him. It's not, it's not necessarily even about like Jesus appearing like as, you know, magically. They say it's about how to tell of a world when the divine shows up in disaster. Um, and Amen. I was thinking about right now, it feels pretty much like the world is in a time of disaster, yeah. Right. I mean, our economy is the world economy is crazy. People are dying. People are really scared. It, our our world is very very shaken. Um, just the way that the world of the disciples and Jesus followers would have been like at that time, right? Like we feel like what is happening, but the divine shows up in disaster. And I think right now we were t- I was talking about that flicker of hope, and that's. Maybe my flicker of hope comes from this sense that Jesus, that God, the Holy Spirit will always show up. Disaster or times of disaster, times of joy, times in between, like God will show up. And so to to live in fervent hope, to cling to that promise, as you said earlier, that belief, to cling to that promise, um, it's an invitation that we're given through this text. Beautiful. I love that. Thank you so much for your insights. Pastor Rachel Langford of Emmaus Lutheran Church in Eugene, Oregon. Um, I thank you for your time and, and for sharing a little bit of your heart and your, and your, um, and your wisdom with us. Thanks for being well, thank with us. thank you. Yeah. This has been episode five of Together in the Word on Pioneer and Third. Thank you all for listening. Have a wonderful weekend. Peace be with you.